We have, um, over the last uh, few months, I've been teaching out of the book of Ruth, and we completed that last weekend. Today, uh, we're continuing in this theme of looking at the son of David. Um, you may remember blind Bartimaeus from, uh, from Jericho, when Jesus was making his final approach to Jerusalem for the, uh, the Passion Week. Jesus knew that he was going to go die on a cross and be buried in a tomb and rise on the third day. His disciples didn't want to listen to that. In fact, Peter tried to stop him and said, no, 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 none of that's going to happen to you. And Jesus actually had to turn to Peter and say, get behind me, Satan. You remember that part of the story? But as they were in Jericho approaching Jerusalem, making, about to make that, that journey up, there was a fellow there, a blind man, who uh, desperately wanted to be healed. But more than wanting to be healed, he believed that Jesus was the one that was long expected, the long-awaited Messiah, the one who had been prophesied and who was coming. And Bartimaeus, on the side of the road, began to cry out, Son of David, have mercy on me. And he was shouting so loud that it annoyed everybody in the crowd. There's a long, a, a long line of people all making their way up to Jerusalem for the feast. And Jesus was in the crowd, and Bartimaeus was yelling. And all the people around him were saying, Shh, be quiet, you're embarrassing us. And Bartimaeus cried out even louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Son of David. This was a messianic title that Jesus was receiving from Bartimaeus. But in fact, it was the long-awaited Messiah who was walking that dusty road. How did Bartimaeus know? What was it about Jesus that made him confident? Bless you confident that uh, that this was in fact the guy well as it turns out we don't have time to get into the full expectation that had developed over the generations for what messiah was supposed to look like but we do understand that because of the because of the uh the exile to Babylon because of the return from Babylon, because of the rebuilding of a temple, and then subsequently the, uh, the wars that, that happened because of the Greeks, Alexander the Great, and then his successors, the wars that happened between Syria and, and Egypt and back and forth across the Levant. Israel had been the center of war for hundreds of years, and there had been a revolt by the Maccabees. You may recall uh, if you've read some of the history. And uh, there, was a, there was a man by the name of Judas Maccabee who, who established the kingdom again. The Hasmonean kingdom came out of that. And for the first time, Israel had a king, about 150 B.C. But it was short-lived, very short-lived. And then the Romans came in and they took control. And the... Uh, and the Jewish people were looking for a Messiah who would set them free from the Romans. They would set them free from war. Who would set them free from centuries and centuries of disappointment and turmoil. Who would see to it that they never had to be exiled again. That they could actually hold their head up high in their own country and be their own boss. Their children could go to the schools that they wanted them to go to. They could live the lives they wanted to live. They could have the religion that they wanted to have without anybody breathing down their necks. Without having to pay taxes to some overlord somewhere. And this Messiah, this Messiah figure was supposed to be the son of David, the one who would come in the might and the power of David. David, of course, being the king from the 10th century BC, the most famous of all biblical kings, except Jesus. David, who had expanded the boundaries and the borders of Israel to the promised borders that God had given. 
When God told Moses, go, take the people, cross over Jordan, Jer uh, uh, cross over the Jordan, and, and uh, Joshua took them across, the, the borders and the boundaries that were given were never reached until the, the, the reign of King David. And King David extended the borders all the way. Israel was complete. And David was a mighty warrior. He slew Goliath, if you remember. And he slew the Philistines and he destroyed the enemies of Israel. And his son Solomon ruled in splendor with pomp and he made gold like the dust of the earth. Gold and silver. Silver was not even valuable in his days because there was so much of it. And his wisdom was sought out from all the earth. Even the queen of Sheba came months and months and months with her, with her caravans of camels traipsing across deserts and wildernesses and wild lands to get to the feet of Solomon where she could be astonished by his wisdom. And this was the golden era. This was the, the time when Israel was at its height, at its best. There was no war within their borders. There was no civil war. There was wealth. And people could become all that they wanted to be. And that was what the son of David was supposed to bring according to the expectation of those in Israel at the time, except for Bartimaeus. Somehow, some blind beggar down by the road in Jericho, which, by the way, Jericho was one of those cursed cities, you may recall. One of those cursed cities that had been rebuilt at the cost of a man's firstborn and his lastborn after it had been cursed when Joshua and the children of Israel destroyed the city in probably the 15th century or 14th century BC. Somehow there at a cursed city, a blind beggar by the name of Bartimaeus saw crystal clear that Jesus, the sandaled rabbi from Nazareth, was the son of David. And when Jesus stopped and said, bring that man to me, everybody was astonished and blind Bartimaeus came willingly to the feet of Jesus. And Jesus said, what is it that you want? And Bartimaeus said, I want to see. I think Bartimaeus had it wrong. I think he already saw. But Jesus gave him his sight back and Bartimaeus joined the throng, the happy throng, that were the ones who shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord when Jesus entered into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. And Bartimaeus was no doubt one of the faithful believers who in subsequent generation would carry the name of Jesus to his family and his relatives and tell them the story of how his eyes were closed, his eyes were blind, but now he sees. From which no doubt we have the popular song written 250 years ago, by the way, by John Newton, Amazing Grace. This is the 250th anniversary of that song. But Bartimaeus saw it clearly. Jesus was the son of David. How could it be? He did not come as a conquering hero. He rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And he was crucified on Good Friday. He was buried in a rich man's tomb, a borrowed tomb, not even his own tomb. He had no burial insurance. He left no life insurance policy. His followers all scattered. How could this man be the long-awaited son of David? And, uh, and so I want to share today uh, a couple of verses of Scripture that point towards this son of David in a new way. If you would, 
Turn with me to Luke chapter, I'm sorry, to uh, John chapter 19. John chapter 19. <laughs> then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. And they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they struck him with their hands. Pilate went out again and said to them, See, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. When the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and according to that law he ought to die, because he made himself the Son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, you will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all unless it had been given you from above. Then he who delivered, therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him, but the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. So when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the Stone Pavement in Aramaic, Gabata. It was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. And they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. So he delivered, them over, he delivered him over to them to be crucified. We have no king but Caesar. This was a powerful denial. Not only a denial of Jesus as the Messiah, but a a denial of the very essence of the promise that God would send Messiah. The chief priests and the rulers of Israel, representing their nation, rejected the concept of Messiah. We have no king but Caesar. Caesar. 
It was a manipulative move on their part. They were trying to manipulate Pilate, clearly. They said, whoever, whoever supports this has, is no friend of Caesar's. And that was a manipulative move to get Pilate afraid that somehow there'd be an accusation against him that he was against Caesar because everybody knew if you stand against Caesar, you, you lose your head and Pilate would be removed. So they manipulated Pilate to get what they wanted. But in doing so, they were willing to blaspheme the very promise of Messiah. We have no king but Caesar. I want to turn, if you will, to the book of 1 Samuel. Now let's have a look at Israel's first king. First Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. And they were judges in Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But the thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give a king to judge us. Samuel prayed to the Lord and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall rule over them. And they asked for a king. Israel didn't want to be like, they, they, they wanted to be like all the other nations. They did not want to be this separate group of people who, who had a leadership that was supposedly uh, leaders who serve, leaders amongst them, not elevated over them, but from amongst them who would serve one another. They didn't want that. They didn't want God to be the one who governs the hearts of men, didn't want God to be the one whose rules were followed because God is invisible. At least with a king you can know, you can see, you can follow, you can, you can uphold. At least a king you can depose if you don't like him. You have control when you have a king. Some level of control. When you have an appointed leader that is a person, you can rise with them or rise against them. You maintain control. But in God's economy, the way God had established his people, he set them in a family where he was the father and they were the children. And he established a relationship with them at Sinai where he was the husband and they were the bride. He established familial relationship because ruling with a rod of iron was not God's speed. That's not what he does, although obviously he can. But when it comes to his family, he wanted love. When he built the garden. He did not build Adam and Eve to be slaves of God. He built them to be lords of the earth. 
designed them, fashioned them, gave them all that they needed to be able to do absolutely everything as representatives of God in the midst of his creation. And he walked with them in the cool of the day and he communed with them and they were his children and he was their father. And that's how he designed the relationships to be. But when man saw the fruit, when Eve saw that fruit, and it looked so good, the knowledge that would elevate her to the same level as God, something she already had. She had access to all of God. She just needed to speak to God. You want to know something? Talk to the Lord. He'll reveal it to you. But no, that fruit was so appealing. The selfishness that governs the hearts of men, the seed of it was there in her heart. And she gave room for it to grow. And so did Adam. And from that time until now, we have sought for leaders who will govern over us with strong arm. People that we can be proud of. Performers who perform well. People who fulfill our responsibilities for us. So we don't have to. But God is not interested in long-distance relationships that do not involve face-to-face -face encounter. He wants to know you. And he wants to know me. And he wants us to know him. He wants us to press into a friendship with him that is willing to say, Lord, seek me and know me and diligently I will follow. Show me what is in my heart that is not pleasing to you, that I may change that. Let our relationship be based on love and grace. But no. They wanted a king. So Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking for a king from him. And he said, these will be the ways of the king who will rule over you, reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain of your vineyards and give it to his officers and his servants. He will take your male servants, female servants. And the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king when, whom you have chosen for yourself. But the Lord will not answer you in that day. You notice what will happen, Samuel says, if we establish a king. He will set a hierarchy. There will be the king then the servants of the king. Then the servants of the servants of the king and you. And you will be at the bottom. And you will look to your king to provide you with protection. But you will learn to resent your king because your king will take the very best of the best and leave you paying for it. Whenever we establish leadership, 
that is based on gifting, power, wealth. Whenever we establish leadership that takes our responsibility and puts it on somebody else, the inevitable result of that is hierarchy. I want to read to you from the Gospel of John, again, if I may. Chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. I want you to just turn a page back, if you wouldn't mind, to chapter 12. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him. There Martha served. And Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at table. Mary, therefore, took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. If you don't mind, let's turn to the Gospel of Luke. Do you mind this Bible drill? In Luke chapter 22, just after the Lord's Supper, in verse 24, a dispute also arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. <laughs> and he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, that the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater and who reclines at table, or who is, who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at a table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, as my father assigned to me, Sorry, I assign to you, as my father assigned to me, a kingdom that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus is establishing his kingdom. He is the king. 
But the way he establishes his kingdom is through this absolutely unprecedented humility and service in which he undoes any right that we may have to claim hierarchy. The Jews wanted a king because they wanted to be like the rest of the nations. Everybody likes to back a winner. Everybody wants to be proud of their champion. Everybody wants to raise up a standard and march under it, lift their heads high and walk with dignity in their communities. Everybody wants to be honored and respected. More than that, everybody wants to be honored and respected and served. And so the way to do that is to create this lottery system where some lucky sod gets chosen out from amongst us, elevated to a position of hierarchy, and then once they are in that place, all of us yearn for and crave to attain what they have attained. If they don't do well, we depose them and put somebody else there who can lead and guide everybody because of envy, because we're all striving after what we don't have. We collect what we have and give it to somebody who represents us, and they then live the good life, and everybody else looks up to it and says, ah, oh, maybe one day that'll be me. Not so in the kingdom of God. In the kingdom of heaven, of which Christ, the son of David, is the true king. He takes the head off of the champion. David killed Goliath with a sling and a stone. David was not the champion of Israel when he went out to do that. David simply said, I honor the name of God. And God empowered him and strengthened him, and he took off the champion's head. David did become the king because Israel had asked for a king. But David made every effort in his heart to make Christ the king, the Messiah who would come. He didn't know that his name would be Jesus and that he would be born in Nazareth, but he knew Christ was coming, and God even told him, he will come through your lineage. A king will rule and reign, and he will not be an earthly king. His kingdom will last forever. And David tried to point to that. His Psalms attest to it. The most powerful of Psalms, Psalm 22. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? A messianic Psalm that is the Psalm Jesus quotes from the cross because he is the son of David. Can I tell you that we need to change our expectation of what leadership looks like? Christ has shown us the way. But for millennia, we have revolted against it. We are unsatisfied to take up responsibility ourselves for raising our own families, our own children. We pass the responsibility on to elected leaders. 
people that we put into positions of authority and power, we expect them to make the difference. We expect them to bring about the rules, the laws that'll change the hearts of men. My friends, there is no way to change the hearts of men except for Christ to wash the feet of sinners. As long as we have this apparition, this demonic apparition of leadership, the church will fail at the gates of hell. But Christ comes to build his kingdom on a solid rock that is him against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail. Christ is our king and he is our leader. And what he does for each one of us is say, the greatest amongst you should be the least. Behave yourself, my friends. Pick up the basin and the towel. Get down on your hands and knees and wash the feet of those around you. We begin here in the household of faith by serving one another, by not expecting somebody else to be the spiritual giant, the guru who steps up and becomes, oh, there's that person we follow after. No, God forbid. Take responsibility. Seek after God. Why should some priest be your go-between? To bring your prayers to the Father as if you cannot bring your prayers to him? Has Christ not made the way for you? Has his blood not washed you clean? Has he not given you his Holy Spirit? Is it not true then that as friends of God, because you obey his word and have trusted in him, is it not true that what you ask of the Father will be granted you in Christ's name? Then why do you seek a leader to make your prayers on your behalf? My God. Do you not know who you are? Sons and daughters of the king. I'll tell you why we do it. Because we're lazy. We do it because we're lazy. Because we're afraid. We're afraid of the cost of following Christ. We're afraid of what it may actually require of us. The rich young ruler has no problem recognizing Christ as Lord, but he cannot follow because it means he's got to give up too much. Which of us here can say we truly follow God? I hope all of us. Today we sang a song about our victor. How he breaks every chain. Every stronghold must come down and be broken. The stronghold will be broken, my friends, because Christ empowers for that stronghold to be broken. He has declared it. He has decreed it. And there is no force in hell that can stand against him except your will, my stubborn will, my refusal to bow my knee. The reason you're still in chains is because you want to be. That's why you're there. It's not because Christ can't set you free. The power of God is absolute. The reason you have those addictions is because you want them. 
Wake up. O sleeper. And rise from the dead. Christ is here. And everything you need. Everything you need. He is giving. There is nothing that stands between you and eternal victory. Reconciliation with your Father in heaven. With no shame. No guilt. No disqualification. Nothing that he has promised that you cannot attain. Everything your heart has dreamed of. Spiritual freedom and revival. It's here. Now. Stop looking for a king everywhere else. And install Christ as king in your heart. And do what he says. Humble yourself. Take up the basin and the towel. Wash the feet of your neighbors. Love with the unconditional love with which you have been loved. Do not hesitate to give to those who ask and look for nothing in return. It's easy to give to those who give back to us. Give to those who have nothing to give to you in return. And do not let the left hand know what the right hand is doing. Crucify your arrogance. Caesar will no longer be our king. We have no king but Jesus. Hail, hail, son of David. Mighty warrior. Lion of the tribe of Judah. Roar. And we will roar with you. Oh, Christ, our King, modify our hearts that we may be your servants. Holy Spirit, come and breathe your fire to burn away the chaff from our hearts. Restore unto us the dignity of the poor. For blessed are the poor. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven.